Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. This is episode 49, and our conversation is with author Jeffrey Blunt, whose novel, The Emancipation of Evan Walls, centers on the childhood of a boy in the late 1960s who decides he wants to be somebody. I think I'd like to start by talking about how you open this story and close this story. You bookend it really as a parent and the emotions and how you feel about being a parent. I wondered how autobiographical that was if you were inserting some of yourself into this story in that bookend. Absolutely, I have two children um, and I recognize from the moment my daughter was, was born, probably the second she was born and she was put on my wife's chest that I started to think about love and responsibility and all of the things I wanted for her and for us as a family, it flooded in. Evan Walls as an adult in the book is overtaken by his daughter's birth. And he is thinking about her life as compared to his. And I think it makes him like, it made me wonder about life going forward. It made him wonder about life going forward it made him recognize how much he loved and cared for her already and wanted the best for her. And so that's why in the end, he was able to take that step and start telling his wife the whole story because he recognized his responsibility as a parent to do what he could for her. If that meant telling his wife the story so she could help him parent her through these things, that's what he had to do. Yeah. I think that becoming a parent really does sort of crack open your own childhood. Yes. In, in lots of ways, right? It makes you so reflective. Absolutely. About how you became the person you are. Parenting shines a light on that in a different way than just being an adult. Yeah. And all of a sudden you recognize what your, the influence your parents had on you. Yes. Um, you know, and, and that certainly was uh, the case for me. And um, I feel blessed. Well, I have two wonderful parents. Um, and when I was growing up, you know, I felt that love and I wanted my children to experience the same thing. So even that felt like a little bit of pressure because I was going to try to give them what my parents gave me. And I didn't know if I was capable of that. Yeah. And frankly, I don't think that Evan knew he was capable of that. And I think Izzy, um, his wife, that's a, a main part of her being there is to tell him that he's capable and that they are capable as a family, that all they have to do is rely on each other and be open and, and tell each other the absolute truth so that they can get through these problems together. Yeah. Did you write this story with your children in mind? I did not. I wrote it with actually other children in mind and a little bit of me because I went through this whole notion of uh, being punished for uh, being a bright African-American child um, within the African-American community. Not as much as Evan that's represented in the novel. He's representative of other children that I read about. In fact, I was inspired to write this book because of stories that I read about other children going through this, being physically attacked, being shunned by family and friends, 
um, to the point where some kids had taken their own lives. And so it, it was really a mission for me to make people aware of these really bright children who were suffering this very quiet agony. You know, they were hidden right in plain sight and they didn't know who to go to. And even people who were watching it didn't know what to do to help. Well, you have some characters in the book that provide some hope yeah. and move Evan forward. I think the one that sort of is the catalyst is Bojack. Yes. He's part of this group of community members that are at Evan's house, but he expresses this, this disappointment with his own community yes. that Evan latches onto. Can you talk about that a little? Yes. Um, Bojack is one of my favorite characters to have created because there had to be so much inside of him. Um, he had to have his own struggle and he was already in his mind past the opportunity that Evan would have. And he was angry about that. He was angry at his parents. He was angry at the community for not standing up for kids and providing more opportunity. So he was at the point where he was just totally frustrated. And he had a little bit of a window because of Eliza Blizzard, the African-American principal at the Black High School, that he had begun working with her to help push for integration. And he began to see what she had, her intellect and her education and, and the power that came with that. And all of that combined to frustrate him to the point of standing up and going on that rant on the porch in front of everybody and calling everybody out for not doing the things they needed to do and pointing out that, look at this black principal, Eliza Blizzard, look at her education, look at all the things she's capable of doing. Um, and we need to be providing that opportunity for our children. And Evan sees that and says, I like that. I want that. I want to do some of that. Yes, it inspires him, but it doesn't really change anyone else's mind. He reaches a 10-year-old. Right. His words resonate with this child, but they bounce off of everyone else. Yes. They don't really change anyone. And, and then we spend 10 years with Evan in that town, in this situation that he continues to just sort of crash up against people who, who don't want him to reach his potential. Right. And I'm so glad that you brought up school integration because I think a lot of people think, well, the 1950s, schools were integrated. No. And here we are in 1968. 14 years after Brown versus Board of Education. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think the other misconception that, I, that people might bring to it is, well, it was the white community refusing to comply. But the picture that you paint in this is much more complicated than that. Yes. As race is in general, much more complicated. Um, yeah, I think. And, and one of the things you point to is that those people, they weren't inspired by Bojack. They had lived a lifetime of already being afraid. They were afraid. And Bojack mentions it you know, it's a typical science project you hear about. You put a, a mouse in, in a cage and leave it there. And then you remove the, the gate at some point and the mouse stays in the cage uh, because it's afraid to go out. And that's sort of, he mentions that. And that's what's happening with the people on the porch. As the author, I believe they want what Evan wants, but they are afraid of being safe in those spaces. And they are afraid as Evan and his great-grandmother have a conversation later, that maybe what, what they've been told that Black people aren't up to it is real and they don't want to compete and find that out. 
So there are all these complications in their mind. Evan doesn't have all that yet. He's 10 years old. And while he knows what it is to be Black, he hasn't lived a whole lifetime of being held back and being uh, left to be afraid. Let's pause right there and listen to a few minutes from Chapter 1. Jeffrey's novel is not an audiobook yet. So I asked my friend and fellow narrator, Earl Sewell, to read for us. Earl is an author, narrator, and audio drama podcaster. And like everything he does, he brought a lot of heart to this reading. This is from Chapter 1 of The Emancipation of Evan Walls, written by Jeffrey Blunt, read by Earl Sewell. A slow drizzle had just ended, the last remnant of a thunderstorm that passed an hour before. I sat there thinking about how much I liked thunderstorms. Most people I knew hated them. There were folks who hid in closets and others who ran around unplugging every electrical device. One of my cousins even slept with her sneakers on during thunderstorms, feeling that as long as she had rubber on her feet, lightning couldn't harm her. Storms created no such anxieties in me. They relaxed me. I would stand at the big window in the living room and listen to the rhythm of cracking thunder breaking against the clouds, like ocean waves against a shore. I would watch the rain come down in sheets, my head jerking from side to side, trying to catch the bolts of lightning. I'd hoped that the lightning would hit the electrical lines and short out the transformer high on its pole, leaving our house in darkness. When Mark was younger, he and I would run to our parents' bedroom, where they usually spent their nights reading the papers and talking. Daddy would reach into the drawer of his nightstand and pull out a flashlight. Grab a hole, boys, he would say. Mark and I would each grab a pant leg and hold on for dear life as Daddy turned on the flashlight and led us ever so slowly through the house. Of course, we could find our way with our eyes closed and not bump into a thing. But there was something different about the darkness brought on by thunderstorms. Something mysterious. Daddy knew that, and he helped us enjoy it. All of a sudden, we'd be on a safari, trudging carefully through a hazardous jungle. I swear, I heard the roar of big Bengal tigers, the squawks of parrots, and the heavy steps of elephants bearing down upon us. Daddy pretended he heard them too. He would stop suddenly at times and shout, Hide! Mark and I would quickly fall to the floor, or pin ourselves to a wall while Daddy inched around a corner, or poked a flashlight into a room, and then declared it safe for passage. We'd attach ourselves to him again, and the adventure would continue. Mark became too old for this after a few years. I kept it up for a while until Daddy lost interest in it, and everything else. I understood because I knew he was in pain. For a long time now, thunderstorms had gone unnoticed in the wall's home. Evan, where are you, son? I'm out here, Mama. Mama 
came out onto the porch, stood behind me, and put her hands on my shoulders. She inhaled deeply. I always did like the fresh way the country smells after a nice rain, she said. Me too, I replied, smiling because she seemed happy. Mama had always been a lover of nature, but for a long time she hadn't noticed a good storm any more than Daddy had. The way she stood behind me, taking in the fragrant odors and staring at the twilight startled me and made me happy. The situation reminded me of one of my favorite memories. Across the road, in front of our house, a row of dogwood trees had grown closer together. Years, when they bloomed thickly, they looked like a puffy white blanket. Mama would be so moved by the sight that she would sit and look at them for hours. One day, I joined her, and she held me close. As she rocked us, she whispered over and over, Sweet springtime snow. She had never been more beautiful to me. Mama was long and lean, at just under six feet tall. Her imposing height and brash personality made her at times seem harsh and unsympathetic. She easily frightened us into good behavior, but those characteristics were generally softened by the single braid of hair ending midway down her back, her beautiful smile and, at the moment, an aura of peacefulness made me want to stay in her arms forever. But those days were long gone. Mama and Daddy shared the pain that had ruined so many of our family traditions. Mark and I felt it. A lot of other people in Canaan felt it, too. That was why everyone gathered on our porch once a week. In a way, it was a support group, a collection of people who came together with a common goal of helping each other endure the next week. Mama took her hands off my shoulders. Come on inside and help your dear old mother make the Kool-Aid. Yes, ma'am, I said and followed. While I stirred the big pitcher of orange-flavored drink, I thought about the meetings which ran from May to October of each year. They had been going on for as long as I had been alive and always took place at our house. I could remember as far back as 1964, when I was six years old. At that age, not much held my attention. But on this particular night, they were talking about John F. Kennedy. At the mention of his name, I sat up and listened. Here was a white man my parents had never spoken of, at least not to me. Then, all of a sudden, that past November, he was killed, and my mother was crying like she'd lost a son. I wanted to know why. When I asked her after his funeral on television, she just shook her head. Every time Moses come along, he gotta die before the job gets done. We ain't never gonna catch a break. I wanted to ask her what that meant, but she looked so broken. I let the moment pass. I really appreciated the way that you you sort of pull out 
and give us backstory on a lot of the different characters in a way that makes us empathetic to their position right now. We see them in a different light because you add these layers of life experience. Mama Jenny is definitely my favorite character in the book. One of the things I really liked about her was that she talks about living in the now just really eloquently. So where did that come from for you? I think it came from my parents. There was a real Mama Jenny, but I did not have a relationship with her like Evan has with the character in the book. So I gave my mom's spirit to the character and I gave my father's spirit to the character Bojack. So you see in them a lot of how I was raised. She also, she values education. Yes. And one of the things that she talks about is that probably the biggest thing that kept us down uh, wasn't shackles on our feet, but shackles on our mind. Yeah. Well, Frederick Douglass said, when you learn to read, you become free. And, and I think what she was trying to tell Evan was your freedom to move about in society, to operate and recognize the, the things you need to do to have the life you want to have, all start with your ability to read, all start with your ability to be educated. And, you know, if you want the best out of life, these are things you need. How do I know? Because I don't have them. How do I know? Because I see what all my life I've seen what the people who do have the education, the advantage they have. And all along throughout the story of the book, you see Eliza Blizzard creating hints in the mind of the reader. This is who Evan could be. This is what education provides. The one Black person who is not afraid to take on the power structure. She's educated. She's smart. She's read the rules. She knows the laws and she's able to apply them. And that's because she's educated. There's something that Bojack says. Bojack says there will always be problems with race relations. Yes. And I think too, that that's the other sort of trap that we fall in, in community is that we think, oh, we've, we've moved past all of that. Right. That's not a problem. And I think Bojack is, says it really well. He talks about it, about building a house. He says, you can't build a house on a crooked foundation and expect it to settle right. Yes. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, about what you meant, what message you were trying to deliver through that character in that way? I wanted people to understand how serious the issue of race was because exactly what you just said, we, we oftentimes say, but we're past that, you know, we're in the 21st century now, all these things are, but then we keep getting hit in the face with it over and over and over again. And at a certain point, you recognize that it is interwoven into the air we breathe as Americans mm. and certainly into the foundation of our country. You know, 39 men signed the Constitution, all of whom were white. And that's the storyline that we were given. If you think of the Constitution as our first chapter, it was drafted by those men who I'm sure saw our country as being controlled as far as they could see by white men and white men benefiting from that. Do you know that the word woman does not even appear or female does not even appear in the original constitution? So all these other people who were around when the first chapter was written, they weren't a part of it. So that mindset is pushed forward and we are constantly battling with that. So Bojack concludes that 
and you use a house because it's basic. If you build a foundation incorrectly, you build a house on it, is, it just, the walls are going to crack. And you have to figure out a way, if you're not going to tear the foundation down, which we are not, then how do we, how do we sustain and how do we rebuild and re, restructure the house on top of the foundation so that we can begin to, to right the ship? And I think that's what he's saying, you know, as, as long as the foundation, if we're, we're, we continue to build on a crooked foundation without making adjustments, we're going to have this problem. I think that Mama Jenny echoes that in a little, in a little bit of a different way. The other layer that she brought to this metaphor of we are on a crooked foundation is that we also are carrying from one generation to a next. Right. Like the way she articulated was that she could feel it in her bones. Absolutely. She could feel it in her bones and she transfers that. Um, you know, Evan talked about loving to sit at her feet and listen to them tell stories. In those stories, they transfer that knowledge. When you shake my hand, you shake everything that my great grandmother gave me. Mm. It is not separate. We are not separate. So when she gave me her heart and explained her life and and put her soul on the line in front of me and laid out who she was and her feelings, that doesn't go away. And her vision and her life alters my existence. And so when I shake your hand, all of that comes with me. And, yes. and, and it doesn't mean it has to overwhelm me, but it comes with me and it has an effect on how I calculate my relationships and, and the spaces in, in which I go as an adult. That's a really beautiful sentiment, actually, that we are, that we carry forward all the people that went before us. Yes. I think most people can, can relate to that, that thought, that idea. So one of the things that we learned through Evan, he's shunned, really. He, he experiences a real pushback from his own community. Right. He also is still experiencing latent racism right. from the white community. And so he goes through his life feeling like an imposter in both, both places or unwelcome in both places right. and that he's sort of stuck in this middle. And a lot of times we think of the middle as being this safe space, right? The best place to be is right down the middle. And yet I, that's not the case for Evan. It feels like a very lonely space for him to be in. I, I guess I, what I like is that it fosters in him a resilience Yes. Like you make him a resilient young man. Um, and yet you still feel this loneliness about him, even as you're, even as we get this window from his adult years, telling this story of his childhood. Right. My message was, you can be resilient. Look at this boy, look at his dreams and look at his continued battle to move forward and become the person he wants to be. And look at how the wisdom around him helps guide him. So therefore, don't do this alone. Therefore, there's somebody in your life, whether it's a teacher or an aunt or an uncle or a cousin or somebody who loves you for you, find that person and tell that person what you're going through and ask for help and guidance. Um, so we all need somebody like that. So I'm glad you raised that point. It was a huge thing for me to make sure that any child reading this book who is going through this experience, high school age, would recognize that there is hope um, and that there are people. Um, not only that there are people who help you, but there are people like you. The other thing I think that repeated for me 
a couple times in the story, you play a bit with thunderstorms. Yes. I love thunderstorms. <laughs> when I was a kid, you know, in, in the South, there are, you know, a lot of uh, um, uh, thunderstorms, electrical storms. And I did used to, we, we had in our dining room uh, behind where my father would sit was a big floor to ceiling window. And I would sit there and watch the rain and I would watch the, the lightning and the thunder. And, and I, I always slept better in a thunderstorm. Um, wow. I know that sounds strange, but I just loved them. And so they have been in, in many things that I've written short stories and things like that. Those storms um, have appeared. There's also some very fun descriptions of a bicycle. And I'm wondering, did, did you have a banana seat bike? I did. <laughs> <laughs> In, in fact, when the, the publisher was making, when they were uh, working with an artist, um, they asked me for some things from my life um, that would represent me in those days. So I went online and I found the, the bicycle with the banana seat and the high, high handlebars, which is what I had. And, and that was one of the things I sent to them. So yeah, it was a, that was a big deal. I, and I had a couple of bikes like that. Yeah, I was actually, I was trying to explain to my children how the bicycle was this 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 great source of freedom absolutely we could ride for when we lived in the country we would go for long rides and in the space between planting in the spring and and the work we would do during the summer in the field you know weeks and spaces in between there you know we would just go riding all day long and pick up friends and those friends would come riding and all we had to do was be home when the light was on and it's sort of like a street light in the field and when that light came on we were expected to be home but otherwise the bikes we gave us total freedom. It was fantastic. Yes. It was hard for my children to, to wrap their brain around the idea that no one knew where we were. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. We weren't tethered in any way. That's correct. Yeah. You know, one of my other big impressions is a couple times in this story, you have your characters imprint a memory. I don't know, it stuck with me and I feel like it happened more than once in the story. And I wondered if that's something you do or why you included that. It is something I do, 100%. And I carry, um, each one of my children, I carry a very special imprint of when they were little in my mind um, that I can turn to when I want to be with them. And you know, my daughter lives on the West Coast. My son's a musician, he's on the road all the time. So when I want to be close to them, I can call up those imprints. So yeah, I'm a big believer in that. And, uh, you know, a lot of people will have pictures in the wallets. I keep them in my mind mm. and, um, and I'm very, I, I see them very clearly. I don't know if that means I have a photographic memory or not, but I see them very clearly and I feel them as much as I do when I took them. And that's why I carry them. So, and yeah, and I think, and there's, there are characters in, certainly in the young adult novel that I wrote and the next book that's coming will do the same thing. So it is a part of me. Yeah. I think, you know, I'm drawn to stories like yours that are, they are about personal strength, personal perseverance, but they're also about relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And relations, relationships are so important in, in this book and they, and, and so much happens to Evan because of the people. Patty Cunningham, here's this white girl from Philadelphia who all of a sudden educates this young black man about black authors. You know, she brings his own culture to him. And when um, 
Eliza Blizzard takes him to Hampton you know, Institute. All of these people are bringing these influences to Evan's life. Yeah, a, a lot of the characters bring something to him and add to his growth in that way. Yes. Well, I think Mama Jenny even says that too, that it's not just what you're born with, it's what you're exposed to. That's right. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. And that is, you know, it is, I'm like, again, I don't think she actually says nature and nurture, but you are really playing with that idea of how we reach our potential. Yes. Yes. And recognizing, recognizing not your full potential, but the, the notion that you have great potential. And, belie- and believing in yourself that there's something special in you um, and that despite what other people are telling you or, or, or trying to show you, that you do have that within yourself. But what I also wanted to, to leave people with, and you mentioned the bookends, you know, when we fight these battles, um, we, we can succeed. But the thing I want people to know, and, and, and when I tell a story like this, is that we don't have to damage each other. In the end, what, what is emancipation? Is it freedom from the situation you're in? Is it freedom to become educated? Or is it freedom to not have the scars that you carry because of what you've gone through? And um, so Evan does carry these, these scars. And I want the reader to see along the way how they're being created and how he has had to come to grips with that to, to have a full life and how he really could not have done that without Izzy. Without his wife, who was white. Yes, I'm, I'm so glad you just did that. I, I didn't have in my notes to ask you about the title, but I really like the way that you have thoughtfully woven emancipation. The last question I always ask authors has to do with the title of the podcast. So I called it the Desideratum podcast because Desideratum is Latin for things that are desired as essential. So I like to ask authors what for you is most essential? What is most essential? I would say for me personally, at this point in my life, uh, self-reflection is most essential. Because as I look back, you know, there's this, this saying, life is lived forward, but understood backwards. And as I look backwards, I think that the thing that was most maybe most important for me, particularly when I was in the news business, was a gift my parents gave me of being self-reflective, of saying to my brothers and I that you always have to be looking at who you are and and questioning what you're doing, first and foremost, Mm. because it will help you find your footing and know whether you're doing what's right or what's wrong for you. And they always said that. And so I look back now and I think about all the times at work, um, you know, the tension of, of live television and, and the politics of, of TV and the news business and all of those things. And the amount of time that I spent alone reflecting on those situations and the peace that I got from reflecting on situations and then how I should proceed. And that's been the case for me in terms of my personal life. So I think really one of the main things for me that's most essential, and and I would give advice that would say, take time to reflect upon who you are and how you are, how you are presenting yourself and how you are living inside your family, your community, and uh, the effect that they have on you and the effect that you have on them. 
And I think when you do that, it's a kind of meditation, I guess, but it helps, it helps to center you and makes your life much more fulfilling, I think. You can find The Emancipation of Evan Walls everywhere you buy books. I'll put a link to Jeffrey Blunt's website in the show notes and a link to narrator Earl Sewell's latest audio drama podcast. This has been Episode 49. As always, thanks for listening.